Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I'm here with Deb. And Deb, say hello. Well, hello. We have been in, uh, what do they call it, when you, you're not around? <laughs> sabbatical? Hiatus. Hiatus, sabbatical, yeah. Mental. Uh, due, to, <laughs> due to many different reasons, including illness, and I am no longer allowed to go on TalkShoe because I have satellite, and satellite and TalkShoe does not get along unfortunately, and my husband did, was in touch with them because um, Patriots Pub is over here on TalkShoe, and he wants to get all of the episodes off and uploaded to Spreaker, and he's unable to do that. So Deb is officially running the switchboard. Virginia. The chat room. And... Yeah. I just wanted to remind everybody that this is an educational show. We are going to explore women's roles in the Revolutionary War. We didn't think that we would find as many as we have. It's really amazing, don't you think? Yes. We're still going and we're still finding women who did remarkable things that we know about. I mean, there were several that did, uh, but there's nothing written about them, unfortunately. But uh, it's very spunky back in those days. Well, and also we are finding women that are not the – everybody gets – everyone talks about Paul Revere and everybody talks about Abigail Adams and, you know, um, Martha Washington. We have – they do have a place. They absolutely do in this timeline. But there are so many women that we have found that have contributed everything that they owned, including their lives and their husband's lives, their children's lives. It, it's just amazing what we found out here, and we were so glad that we did do this and have found and have found more so that we can continue this because the only thing that's going to save this country is knowledge. Don't you agree? Oh, yes, yes. Knowledge is power, and um, the, the, uh, the lack of knowledge, well, I wouldn't call it lack of knowledge. I'm sure they know, but the revision, revisionist knowledge that is, so prevalent today uh, is, is criminal, and we need to counteract it, and you need to know what the founders really in, intended and what people actually did back in those days and what those days were all about to find out, um, you know, what, what is wrong with today in, in our country. Um, unless you know that what the government is doing today is totally unconstitutional, then you don't know and you won't be able to fight it. So this is why we're, we're uh, shouting out for the women who stood by their, their, uh, the birth of their country and 
gave their all and then some. Well, and going to need to do the same. Right. And also, we had decided, um, we were starting to kind of slow down on the Patriot women, and uh, Deb and I decided that, you know, the part of history that was the Civil War, which was the Revolutionary War, true Civil War, um, not what they're portraying over in Europe, which drives me insane, but <laughs> you yeah. can't have a Civil War with somebody who isn't a citizen of your country. That, that doesn't work. <laughs> they have to be a citizen. And we were all British citizens, which has to be brought up over and over and over again because, of course, we weren't taught any of this, and we were robbed. But it was important. It's important to know because we don't want another bloody civil war, and that's what will happen. Well, unless we're having a war with the refugees, Deb, then you know that again, they're not citizens. They're not citizens, so <laughs> that, it'll be an invasion. That we'll be fighting off an invasion. That's right. Um, but we had decided that not only were the patriots important in this history timeline, but the loyalists were as well, and they also gave up a lot. Actually, they gave up a lot more than the Patriots, as we found out, as a lot of them fled the, the, the colonies and most of their, their, their goods and their uh, stores and their houses and their belongings were confiscated. And a lot of it, especially in New York, they were the first ones to do that kind of confiscation and sell it off to help pay for the war. So as we were exploring it, I keep saying, you know, the loyalists really, really lost out. And they thought that Britain would, would you know, coddle them and protect them and help them, and, and that wasn't the case. So a lot of the loyalists that we do highlight are tragic. It, it is very tragic. It's tragedy all around, but they really did lose a lot. And the other thing is that sometimes we cannot find – a lot of information on these women. And since we haven't been around for a, long, for a while and we might have new listeners, why don't you explain why we can't always find certain information because Anne, who we're going to do with the loyalist, she doesn't have that much information on her. And when we find that, what we do then is we expand the lesson to include everything that's going on around these women. And can you just explain briefly why that might happen? Oh, why we can't find um, find much about the well, geez, um, it's a lot of a lot has to do with the fact that mm, there aren't any written records because the historians who were mostly male at the you know in the past focused on the men who went out there because women weren't supposed to be political; it wasn't their place, um, and we showed them. <laughs> But they wrote about the men and, and their actions. Little was written about the women. And also, not everybody kept a journal uh, or, you know, a, or, or letters um, weren't kept. Or, you know, a lot of, like Martha Washington burned all her letters to George. She didn't think it was anybody's business what she wrote to him. And then there were the, you know, fires and and whatnot uh, of records in, you know, where the buildings, where the records were kept. So it's not really easy to find uh, a lot of documentation on what the women, and that they did. A lot of times um, there may be only a paragraph in a book uh, about a woman, or they didn't even know her name, but, you know, stories on down the, you know, like from another journal, it tells about this woman who did something, but they didn't even know her name, 
And um, it, thank God there are women today, you know, like in the past two decades, who have been pounding the archives um, to find information on these women. And uh, if you go to Amazon and put in Revolutionary War plus women, you'll find the the uh, several books that are out now, which are really, really good. Um, and even they don't cover it all. Um, it's, it's within letters. I mean, I've been over to archive.gov and read letters from other people, and a name will pop up that they talk about someone who did something. So it's like you have to be a detective to find a lot of this stuff uh, about what the women did. And, you know, gratefully, um, a lot of women are now being brought to the fore that uh, had pretty darn courageous roles. You know, it might have only been uh, one incident that we know of, but it shows you the character of, of the women on both sides of the fence. Um, you know, they, they stood by their beliefs, um, and they weren't going to uh, just sit by and, and be run over. So it's really been fascinating in researching, uh, you know, the, uh, the goings-on within the women's population. Well, and another link that you sent me has a bunch of uh, names of women loyalists listed in there. So what I'm going to have to do is go in and see if we've done any of them and then make two separate lists of ones that we didn't do and then we can research from, you know, if we can find anything on them. But it's going to be a little bit of work. So I did find another one, though, um, <laughs> and Ann Bates. And I don't think we've done her. I'm going to look and uh, that might be our next. Oh, no, we did do her. Familiar. I, just, I just found her. <laughs> we did do her. She sounds familiar, but it could be just that, you know, from the books I've read, I'm not sure. I can't remember. No, she was a loyalist spy. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just found, we found her. So anyway, tonight our lady is Anne Delancey Kruger. She's a loyalist. And we are going, I, I cannot believe what this woman has gone through. We're going to be going from the Northern Theater to the Southern Theater. It, I mean, and every place in between with her and her and her loyalist husband. But to begin with, because of what, how Deb just explained it, and that's why I wanted her to have that explanation, we don't have that much on her. And what we're going to do is, as we do with women we don't have much on, we go around what's going on at the timeline, where she is, who she's involved with. So I'm going to start with her, and then we're going to have to get into, I'll, I'll explain once I read this. So this is Kitty Poor Ann Kruger, and this is from um, which besides the loyalists we go to is the United Empire Loyalist Association of Canada. They're very proud to be, that they were loyalists, but they've, then again, they're still under the queen, so you can't blame them. Pity poor Ann Kruger. She was the eldest daughter of Oliver Delancey, the senior loyalist officer during the American Revolution. Her husband, John Kruger, was a former mayor of New York and a prominent loyalist war hero. This was all too easy for her story to become lost in the shadows of the exploits of the men in her life. And I'm not going to... I'm, not going to go on any further than that because we do need to do the background on her that... When, if you have a father 
a mother, a husband, and they're loyalists, you're a loyalist. If your husband's a loyalist, you're just a loyalist. But whether or not you're, you have sympathy for patriots or you don't agree and that you don't agree with the loyalists and you don't agree with the crown, it doesn't matter. If your family are loyalists, you're loyalists. So even if her husband wasn't because her father was, she would be and everybody else in the family would be. Unless, like, you know, they escaped or ran away from their family or, you know, pledged allegiance to this, this, the state and the patriots, blah, blah, blah. But just by your birth, you would be a loyalist if your father was a loyalist. So her father was a prominent loyalist, so we need to highlight him, and Deb is going to do that for us. Okay. It was... Um her father was Oliver Delancey, or Delancey, 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 I think is how you say it. Um, and uh, let's see, let me get up the uh, the other one, too. I forgot about that part. Um, oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Hold on, I have to get in my file. Anyways, he was a prominent citizen in, um, where did I have it? It should be downloaded. Oh, God. You know, you get new, uh, you get new things and, um, new, new, uh, computer software, and then you can't find a darn thing. Well, I, and I just got a new smartphone, and it's been <laughs> quite an adventure. Yes. I, <laughs> Got rid of mine. I wasn't. It was exhausting. Okay. Let's see. All right. Now. Okay. But anyways, um, first of all, he, he during the, the Revolutionary War, he was uh, let's see, general, and he started a brigade, and um, the let's see. Uh, and this is from archive.gnb.canada, CA. This is from Canada. Uh, and it, it goes, General Delancey, strange to say, had not by birth a single drop of English blood in his veins, yet at the time of the revolution he put his life and property at stake to prevent the dismemberment of the empire. His ancestors on his father's side were French and on his mother's Dutch. Upon the submission of Long Island to the British in August 1776, General Howe appointed Oliver Delancey a brigadier general with orders to raise three battalions of 500 men each for the defense of the island. By virtue of his commission, Oliver Delancey became the senior loyalist officer in America during the war. And again, as, as Susan said before, to raise his battalions, the general himself contributed large sums which were supplemented by contributions from the inhabitants of every town on Long Island, amounting in the aggregate to some thousands of pounds. Um, and it was, uh, the battalions were organized for the defense of Long Island and other exigencies. Oh, there we go, tongue-tied again. Yeah, other um, situations, let's put it that way, I can say that word. Uh, but let's go over here to the, um, oops, 
I see again. I, I try to get to my files up and they don't come up. I don't understand. Let's see. Oh, all right. Open that up. Open, open. Thank you. This is, um, let's see, I have to go way down. Um, let's see, where is it? Uh, da -da -da. This tell us about him. Well, anyways, he was he was the mayor of New York, I do believe. I'm trying to find it here. This is again we well, patch it all together. Well, uh, her her father wasn't. Her husband was. Well, I think didn't he take over for him at one point? See, I'm trying to get this down. There's this wonderful. Uh, let's see. Uh, what's this one? New York State. There's this wonderful um, book, um, or this, this essay, on the history of the Hudson River in New York during the Revolution, and it's quite long. And uh, But it does talk about him, but I can't find it right now, so we'll go back to the, the battalions. Because basically, that's where he... I mean, he had been very, very much... Um, an important citizen in New York, uh, you know, very political. He had been political. Okay, are you are you on the site about General Delancey? Yes. Okay, and he had that he didn't have a single drop of blood. We did that. Yes. And his ancestors on his father's side. Yes. Okay, and, and then he went to Long Island. Right. Yeah. And. Um, do you have that? Do you have that up, or do you want me to do it? Because I have, I'm looking at it right now. Okay, why don't you do it, and I'll look for the other, uh, the other part about him. Okay. So General Howe appointed Oliver Delancey a brigadier general with orders to raise three battalions of 500 men, each for the defense of the island. They had just taken over at Long Island on August 1776. By virtue of his commission, Oliver Delancey became the senior loyalist officer in America during the war. Now, that is a big deal. So there's no, there was no way of Anne getting away from this. This is a huge deal. That what the station is with he is, um, what the um, the loyalist officer, what he is. So not only that, that they're going to be making a lot more money than say a regular soldier would. The British is going to pay their officers more, and that's going to trickle down to Anne and her family. So the reason I'm saying this is because what this woman goes through and what she left, she had a pretty good life. I mean, even though the war had broke out, she was around her family. Her father was this prominent loyalist officer. Um, they had a pretty good life. So to raise his battalions, the general himself contributed large sums, which were supplemented by contributions from the inhabitants of the, every town on Long Island amounting in the aggregate to some thousands of pounds. The 3rd Battalion, commanded by Colonel Gabriel G. Ludlow, consisted from the colonel down to the lowest subaltern of natives of Queens County, Long Island, and the non-commissioned officers and privates were also natives and included many of the solid yeomanry of the island. In order to stimulate the enlistment, orders were issued that any reputable citizen who raised a company of 70 men should have the appointment of its officers, captain, lieutenant, and an ensign. The three battalions were soon raised. 
General Delancey was Colonel of the First, and his son-in-law, John Harris Kruger, was his lieutenant colonel. George Burrington, an alderman of New York who had rendered distinguished service in the late French War, was Colonel of the Second, and his lieutenant colonel was Stephen Delancey, eldest son of the general. Gabriel Ludlow, as just stated, commanded the 3rd Battalion, and his lieutenant colonel was Richard Hewlett of Hampstead, Long Island. So this just goes to show how much the people around her were loyalists. And yep. then, and this is also going to show why she's going everywhere she's going, because I, this woman went everywhere. <laughs> I, I remember reading it. I was like, what? <laughs> I know. She did. She, she traveled up and down. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, I mean, his family was, uh, you know, his his... I think it was his grandfather came over in the 1600s, and uh, you know the Dutch were already in the um, in the uh, New New York area, and because they were Dutch and the British moved in, um, the Dutch lived their own life their own way. And the British came in, and they didn't think highly of the Dutch, and the Dutch didn't think highly of the British. So the the British kind of moved north and out of the New York, um, you know, Long Island, Manhattan area, and and went up north, as we have discussed in other shows about some uh, women of Dutch descent. Well, but most of the Dutch just went back. They didn't... It yeah. wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. They didn't have rel- religious persecution, um, and they had more freedoms in their own land. They were prosperous. They were the bank. So they, you know, when the when England moved in, they were like, yeah, well, we'll just go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of them did. Up north. But the thing is, is that women were, you know, the, the British women, well, the way the British kept their women was much different than the Dutch, and the Dutch women were much more equal to their men than the British women were to their men, and they couldn't understand, you know. <laughs> it's it's very interesting to read the differences um, about the uh, about the, the difference in their cultures and and why that you know they just. They couldn't hang with the British at all. They they were taking over. So, well, and as I just read, not only was her husband um, mayor of New York, and there was a lot of loyalists in New York. Um, even though they it took twice for them to capture New York, Long Island fell pretty easily because there were a lot of loyalists there as well as did Philadelphia. But yeah. um, not only was he in the regiment with her father, um, did you find out about him being mayor? No, it doesn't really talk about him in here. It's more about um, what was going on in New York at the time. I mean, it's really an interesting article uh, about what they, uh, um, it says here, the largest and most influential of the region's families were the Delanceys, the Livingstons, the Phillipses, and the Van Cortlands. The latter three had been granted extensive land holdings in the Hudson Valley by the Crown and as such enjoyed tremendous wealth and political influence. The Delanceys were minor French Huguenot nobility that married into the Van Cortlands and enjoyed a meteor, meteoric rise to prominence in the colony. 
While all held property in New York City, the Delanceys and the Phillips owned much of present-day Westchester, Putnam, and Dutchess counties, whereas the Livingstons held much of modern Columbia County. Of these great clans, the Delanceys were the most successful in gaining government and religious office, holding both civil service positions, including the lieutenant governorship of James Delancey II from 1753 to 55, and again from 1757 to 1760, and serving as wardens and vestrymen in Westchester's Anglican churches. The living, okay, when the revolution began, there was little doubt as to which side the Delanceys would support. Fortunately for them, much of the family lived in New York City, where a strong British presence and the authority vested in their civil positions kept them safe. However, there were family members scattered throughout the colonies, and these had to be more careful in their politics. When asked about the various committee har- committees' harassment of suspected loyalists, and this is the, the Patriots, um, the, the, the committees that um, investigated loyalists uh, on the side of the Patriots, Stephen Delancey of Westchester answered that his family regard not anything the committee does with them so long as they have their liberty. He was left largely unmolested prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. James Delancey, also of Westchester, was more vocal in his loyalty to the king and as such faced attacks on his home. When the British occupied New York City in the summer of 1776, the Delancey family was well poised to take up leadership positions among the loyalist refugees streaming into the city. Oliver Delancey, one of the clan patriarchs who had served with the with distinction during the French and Indian Wars, was made a Brigadier General by General Sir William Howe. In doing so, he became one of the only Americans to reach flag rank in the British Army during the Revolution. General Delancey was authorized to form a brigade of Loyalist troops and quickly raised some 1,500 men. This unit served with distinction throughout the war, with the 1st Battalion distinguishing itself at the defense of Savannah in 1779. General Delancey, who also was able to assist his nephew James in raising his own unit, officially called the Westchester Chasseers, but better known by their nickname, Delancey's Cowboys. This band of cavalry raiders helped turn Westchester County into a dangerous no-man's land between British-held New York City and the rebel-held Hudson Highlands. The peculiar nickname was earned by their habit of stealing the cattle of any suspected rebel sympathizers they could find in Westchester. At its peak, the unit mustered 500 men, all raised from Westchester and Dutchess counties. James Delancey had no military experience prior to raising the Chasseers and thus relied on his family connections to to secure this vital commission. And other family members uh, also served as a, his eldest son, Stephen, served as a lieutenant colonel in the 1st Battalion of Delancey's Brigade. Oliver's second son, Oliver Jr., had already been a lieutenant in the prestigious 17th Light Dragoons when the war began, but was transferred to a series of positions on the British command staff. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, uh, they, they were very, very powerful powerful family, but and despite the power and influence the Lanceys enjoyed, their family was not without political division. 
The Westchester branch, cousins to General Delancey's family, was split over whether or not to support the king. The family's eldest son, Stephen, served as the recorder of Albany before the war and was arrested with other loyalists in um, Albany in 1775. <coughs> Excuse me. The family's eldest daughter, Alice, married Ralph Izzard, one of South Carolina's representatives to the Continental Congress. While this is not in and of itself a direct statement of her political leanings, the fact that she never joined her family in New York or British forces in South Carolina can be taken as such. There is no such ambiguity, however, in the politics of the family's seventh son. James Delancey of the aforementioned Chassiers, or of the family's youngest sibling, Oliver. At the start of the war, Oliver was an officer in the British Navy. However, after American blood was shed in Massachusetts in 1775, he resigned his commission, refusing to fight his fellow Americans. Thus, even the most powerful and influential of the Hudson Valley's loyalist families faced the same internal strife and discord that thundered many of the region's families. So there, that really shows you um, the uh, the uh, strife among the families. Um, and it, you know, it, it wasn't even wasn't even neighbor against neighbor. It was, you know, as we found with Ben Franklin and his son, you know, it, it, it tore families in half. Exactly. So, and that's the good, I'm glad you found that because that's a really good background knowing where she comes from. Yep. Okay, so I'm got, going back to the uh, loyalist trails. Sometime after Ann Kruger's husband joined the 1st Battalion of Delancey's Brigade in 1776, which she just read, and I did too, she went to live with her parents in their home in Bloomingdale, New York. While the men of the family were away, the Delancey home came under attack in November of 1777. Late one night, the women discovered Patriots were breaking into their house. Ann Kruger and her sisters were ordered to leave quickly since the Patriots were going to burn the house down. Had one rebel not stopped to a companion from striking the Lancy women with his musket, there would have been more than just a burnt house to mourn. As it was, a lighted curtain was thrown on one of the women. Anne's younger sister picked up her brother's baby and fled into the woods. The rebels plundered and burned the house. Anne became separated from her family. She traveled several miles along bad roads in her nightdress until she was discovered by a loyal innkeeper and was taken in, cherished and hospitably entertained. So that's the first of her adventures. She got, because she didn't live there normally, she didn't know the woods, she didn't know the area, and she didn't know um, where she was. I mean, she didn't have time no. to, you know, to get a grip on stuff because... Um, She's only been there a couple of months. So here she is wandering around in her nightdress. And this, this um, I'm going to give a little hint. This is kind of her M.O., <laughs> the fourth woman. And as I said, this also happened with Patriots, but um, the Loyalists kind of had a harder time. Oh, and by the way, I have a crazy rooster. We call mm -hmm. him Crazy Chicken. And since it's so hot here where I am, you're going to be hearing him. And he has a horrible little voice. 
and he's a freaky-looking chicken. And I'm, I did take a picture of him, and I'm going to email it to you. Or <laughs> Once I figure out how to do that, I can do that on my phone. I need to figure it out. Yes, you can. <laughs> okay. So is it loud, as loud as Rue? No, no, not as loud as Rue. He sounds so pitiful, doesn't he, compared to Rue? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Rue was, you know, he was a pain, but he was my little Rue. I mean, I raised him from a baby, and he was majestic. Was good crow. That that rooster had a crow. Yeah, he's a big boy too. Poor mm. thing. He's in chicken heaven. Okay. Um, I know we didn't kill him and eat him. He died of a heart attack. <laughs> so, so we're we're good with that one. All right. Um, so she's wandering down around the woods, and she ends up. Somebody takes her in in her nightdress. Unbelievable, poor girl. And now we're gonna go. Do, 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 do. Within a year, Lieutenant Colonel John Kruger was assigned to service in Georgia. So now he goes from the Northern Theater, Long Island, and New York, and he's transported to the Southern Theater. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk about Savannah, Georgia, because she ends up trying to get to him as well. Now, what had happened is the British tried to take over Charleston. When they found... And because of the swamp fox, and we, we actually will talk about him as well, and we've had in previous shows, they found it a little bit more difficult to take over the Southern Theater. First of all, they were, you know, the Northern Theater was pretty much taken over by George by the time that they turned their attention to the Southern, George Washington. And George Washington couldn't send any troops down there because he was struggling with that. So... What happens is that the British find out that the territory, and this was, you know, we always thought, call, say, General Winter and Mother Nature is the one that controls our, our every thoughts and our actions because we're controlled by Mother Nature and God. Um, you know, as, as far as <laughs> where we can travel, when we can travel, what's because of the weather. So anyway, the terrain they found down in the Southern Theater was much different. It was swamp. It was heat. There was humidity. And, of course, um, Deb, you can account for that. That's what you've been living in for about, what, two weeks, two, two or three weeks? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've been thinking about those, you know, what they, they wore, um, the clothing. And luckily it wasn't as bad as during the Civil War. But still, I mean, you, I, I'm sitting here in my little cotton camp shirt, sleeveless with my little shorts, and I'm hotter and just sitting here sweating. I can't imagine these women that wore, yes, they wore cotton in the summer or light wool, but they also wore about 25 pounds of clothing on their little five-foot, you know, average height bodies plus the corsets. And I'm thinking, dear God in heaven, how could you do anything wearing all those clothes and, oh, my Lord, no wonder they left the the southern states in the summer. Whew. The ones that could. Yes, and the terrain was completely different. Like I said, there was swamps, there's little lakes all over the place, tributaries. So what happened is that they, this a real, just a little backstory. We might have it in Savannah, Georgia, um, 
battle. I need you to, to bring that up because that's what we're going to talk about next. Um, when they tried to, to take over Charleston, they couldn't. And I, if I remember correctly, a lot of this stuff that happened in a lot of these battles were the hand of God. They really were. Um, I think a, a fog came in and they just they couldn't get to Charleston. So they decided that they were going to get go to Charleston to capture, capture it using the coast and entering it through Georgia. And we actually did a couple of Patriot women that have to, had to keep running away from these little islands, going from one, one island to another island to another island outside of Charleston because the, the uh, British were coming up through them to go to Charleston and they were burning everything in its place or ransacking and then they would go back. Remember that woman? I think she went like, she would go 50 miles or 15 miles and then when they left, she'd go back to her home. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they decided that they were going to go capture Charleston by using the Georgia uh, route. So within a year, Lieutenant Colonel John Kruger was assigned to service in Georgia. Rather than staying with the relative safety of British-held New York, Anne decided to follow her husband. In October of 1779, she was boarded on old transport that was part of a supply fleet bound for, bound for Savannah, Georgia. A tropical storm scattered the vessels of the fleet. Miraculously, Anne's ship stayed afloat long enough to be captured by French Admiral, and I can't say his name, Destain? Destain. Destain, who was on his way to lay siege to Savannah. Everyone was taken aboard the French vessel from where they watched their dilapidated ship finally sink beneath the waves. Instead of being at her husband's side inside a fortified Savannah, Anne was on a French man-of-war that was attacking the British garrison. As Judge Jones put it, she heard every gun that was fired. She knew her husband was in the city. What must have been her feelings, her thoughts, her agitations upon this trying occasion? The French and the Patriots could not defeat the defenders of Savannah and made ready to sail away. However, before Disdain left, he put Anne ashore, including all of her clothes and personal effects. Mrs. Kruger later recounted that she had been treated with every kind of politeness on the French ship. The days ahead were anything but peaceful for Anne. And I'm going to stop right there and just have a little picture in your mind of this poor young woman standing on this alien shore in the middle of nowhere with all her stuff. Yeah. Un- Believable. Now, does do we have anything on Admiral Disdain? Did you ever find anything on him? Oh yeah, I can. I can. Um, he was interesting. Okay, so we can do him, and then I need you to, if you don't mind, do the the Savannah, Georgia battle yeah. of. Okay, sounds great. Okay. Here we go. Um, let me find the. Okay. Charles Hector, Count de Stang, and I, I won't even say his, his, well, his full name was Jean Baptiste Charles Henri Hector, Count de Stang, Marquis de Salam. <laughs> the French really knew how to do names, I'll tell you. Born. Um, November 24, 1725, in Rouvel, Auvergne, France, and he died in 1794 in Paris. 
He was the commander of the first French fleet sent in to support the American colonists during the war. Desteng served in India during the Seven Years' War and was governor of the Antilles in the 60s. He was appointed vice admiral in 67 and in 1778, attempted to surprise the English squadrons in North America and enable the colonists to resume the offensive. His blockade of Admiral Richard Howe in New York Bay proved unsuccessful, and that was July 1778. And in August, storms prevented him from engaging the British fleet uh, near Newport, Rhode Island. In November, he sailed for the Antilles, where despite several opportunities, he failed to eliminate a much smaller British squadron. He was seriously wounded in a non-successful attack on Savannah, Georgia in September, October of 1779, and returned to France with his squadron. Desteng was an energetic commander, but his lack of naval experience caused him to be diffident before smaller British forces. His caution and hesitancy greatly disappointed the colonists during a crucial phase of the war. Um, and then in, in France, he was an enlightened reformer, and he is elected to the Assembly of Notables in 1787, and he was commander of the National Guard at Versailles at the outbreak of the French Revolution and was guillotined in Paris during the Reign of Terror. So, yeah, I, it, in, if you read about, you know, any of the George Washington biographies, you will read about the frustration that... Washington had with the Admiral because he never showed up where he was supposed to and he just never won any any uh, confrontations. He was not a seafaring person. He did much better uh, in political uh, appointments. So that was the Admiral the saying. Now, Getting to Georgia, which is, Georgia was a very interesting part of the revolution because it was late to come to it. I mean, it was so far down. You have to remember that Georgia took up a lot of, it was huge, and it was very, um, it was underpopulated uh, compared to the, the northern colonies. So it was pretty much still uh, um, primitive. Uh, there was only a few of the, you know, it was along the, the seacoast that, you know, of course, that most people were because, you know, the shipping and all that. So there was a lot going on, and it went back and forth between the Patriots and the British, and um, the... Uh, they were the. They tried to um, make it a constitution, and that didn't happen until 1779. And that's when the state's first county, or 1777. I'm sorry, and that's when the first counties were created. Um, and it and again, the uh, Georgia militia. Um, Tried, they did not. Uh, they tried to go into Florida, and it didn't work so well. Um, it, it was just really. There were three abortive invasions of Florida, and the patrolling of the western frontier. The Whigs accomplished little during the first three years of independence, except survival. 
However, they gained um, experience in self-government and a determination not to surrender their new independence, and that was no small achievement. The Indians would have created greater havoc in the backcountry as the result of the instigations of John Stewart and Thomas Brown, but for the efforts of Continental Indian Commissioner George Galfin. Galfin used his enormous influence to persuade many of the lower creeks to remain neutral, and that was, like, really important, too. So now they're moving down through, um, the British are moving down through Augusta in 79, and there were these battles, um, and the Kettle Creek battle ensured the continued independence of Upper Georgia, and but the the loss at the Briar Creek battle meant that the lower part of the state returned to British rule. So, they so the northern northern part of the state or the you know what was the state by then um, was Whig, Tory or I mean Patriot, and and the southern part was still under British rule. So. In 1779, Governor Sir James Wright returned to Georgia and announced the restoration of Georgia to the crown with the privilege of exemption from taxation. Thus, Georgia became the first and ultimately the only one of the 13 states in rebellion to be restored to royal allegiance. Governor Wright had hardly settled to his duties when on September 3rd, 1779, a French fleet of 25 ships appeared unexpectedly off the Georgia coast. Count Charles Henri d'Estaing intended to oblige George Washington by stopping off on his way back to France to recapture Savannah. He disembarked his army, uh, excuse me again, of 4,000 to 5,000 men at Beaulieu on the Virgin Vernon River and proceeded to besiege Savannah. Major General Benjamin Lincoln, Lincoln hurried over from South Carolina with his army to join in the siege. Destang demanded the surrender of Savannah on September 6th, but General Augustine Prevost asked for 24 hours to give an answer. During that day, Lieutenant Colonel John Maitland brought his 800 redcoats in from Beaufort, South Carolina, to bolster the British defenses. Then Prevost declined to surrender. On October 9, 1779, the Allies launched a grand assault upon the British lines and suffered 752 casualties, while the British defenders lost only 18 killed and 39 wounded. Count Casimir Pulaski, a Polish nobleman who had volunteered to fight for the cause of liberty, died at the head of the men he led. Sergeant William Jasper, the hero of the 1776 Battle of Fort Moultrie, also died. The battered French army withdrew to its ships, and Benjamin Lincoln's troops returned to Charleston. So they kind of lost on all that. Um, and this is when uh, Clinton moved in, General Sir Henry Clinton moved in from New York um, on Tybee Island and then began the siege of Charleston. So the siege of Savannah didn't um, come out the way that they, they wanted, and that was what was talked about in, in the article I read on the gen or the Count uh, Destang. They just kind of um, didn't make it a victory, and the British continued to hold Savannah and then marched into Charleston. Yes, they did. Now... Think about this that you just said. All that is going on, and she's hearing it all. 
Yep. And she doesn't know where her husband is. She doesn't know if he's alive. She doesn't know if he's dead. Um, and even though it was a victory for the British, it still didn't mean anything. And, and you know, I just can't un- – I don't understand – what gave this, she must have loved her husband so much, gave her the courage to leave her family behind and go by herself and do this. She's all alone. Like a lot of the, the women that we've done, they're usually either with family or they're with their children. This is one of the rare instances where she was completely alone. Well, a lot of the women had to stay back behind and run the, run the businesses or the farms. Um, plus they had, you know, four, five, six, eight, ten children. Uh, but And she, of course, was in a better position. Um, you know, she had, she was of the upper crust and, and they, had, they had a lot of help. But still, for her to leave, you know, I imagine she had uh, um, some, some women companions or, you know, servants. Uh, does it mention that if she had servants or anything? Because they usually had a couple with them, but uh, still. No, no. As a matter of fact, they don't mention that at all. That's why I was saying to my saying that you know yeah. she's all alone. They don't even mention that she has anybody with her, and she and she wouldn't because if they even on that account that I just did, they said they put her on the shore with her belongings. Oh. Well, that could mean slaves. Um, well, it was New York now. No, they had slaves. Well, yeah, I know, but a lot of them didn't. Yeah, but, um, well, we don't know. But anyways, she was there, and it didn't matter because she was on her own, basically, going into a battle, a siege. You know, and knowing her husband was in the thick of it because he was, uh, you know, head of the battalion, so. Not only that, Deb, she was on the enemy ship. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she was on the French ship having the French attack her British I know. countrymen. Yes. Oh, my God. It, it is. It, it's... And she could do nothing about it. No, no. She was treated well, though. <laughs> because they did, you know, gentlemen didn't, um, they didn't, uh, well, supposedly there was, you know, chivalry still, and they didn't um, hurt the women of nobility, no matter. But still, she's on a French ship. The, sh- the ship is supposed to take out the British army in, in Savannah. Her husband's there fighting with them, the, the Patriots are coming in, the French are coming in, and there she is. Oh, my God. I know, and that, you're right. They did treat her well until they dumped her off on the beach and left her. Yeah, well, we got to go fight now, you know, and then I'm going no, back. They were, <laughs> no, they were leaving. They were leaving because they lost. That's well, I read. Yeah. Well, they kept her safe. I mean, that was nice of them. <laughs> God. I, I just can't um, imagine. You're on your own, darling. You know, <laughs> I oh. have active friends. I just can't do this anymore. Oh, my God. Oh, I know. So there she was. Now she has. I got to read that away again. 
The French and Patriots could not defeat the defenders of Savannah and made ready to sail away. However, before Despain left, he put Anne ashore, including all of her clothes and personal effects. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> oh, my God. Ow. Could you imagine standing there? And you, now you're going to still smell all the smells of war, right? Oh, yes. People don't realize that. You smell the gunpowder. You're going to hear residual fire, you know, fighting as they're they're still either scrambling to leave or you know fleeing, or and the and the British are going after the people fleeing. So you're going to hear that, and you're going to see the ship just sailing away from you. Yeah. I, I I can't imagine. Yeah, and, and Savannah's on the river. You know, it's it's not like it's right there, like she could walk up from the beach. You know. <laughs> It's not like she was at a resort. She could just walk up to the, the uh, mansion. Uh, no. It, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so now, and this is what I like about this. It says that she had every kind of politeness, as you said. The days ahead were anything but peaceful for Anne. Um, I haven't seen the days behind her be anything but peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was no no fun to be on a ship. To begin with, I mean, yes, she might have had a nice little cabin, but they were very small, and then you had weather, and, and there's all these sailors, and yes, they were they were French um, seamen, but still, uh, and, you know, hands off, you don't bother the lady, and but still, I can't imagine it was a vacation. Well, I mean, we start off with her going to her parents' house, and the friggin' rebels burn it down. Mm. And she runs to the, the woods, and she has no idea where the hell she is <laughs> in her nightdress. That wasn't peaceful. No. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I haven't read. Hey, a peaceful, I haven't read a peaceful moment in this woman's life yet. Yes. Okay, so. Um, Within eight months of her arrival, rebels captured her husband. He was later released in a prison exchange and put in charge of Fort 96 in South Carolina. Anne accompanied John to his new posting where she lived in the garrison, feared as the people did, was beloved by the privates, and esteemed and almost adored by the officers for her kindness and hospitalities upon all occasions. Okay, so this is a little bit peaceful. Yes, yes. (laughs) Things had settled down. Well, that you know, this is how it was. Everybody thinks that, you know, all eight years of the Revolutionary War was just battle, 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 battle. But it wasn't. It was, I mean, they had time for, for official dinners and balls and, and theater in between battles. And in the winter, they didn't fight at all, for the most part, because you didn't. And it was downtime between each battle. And that's when, you know, you could settle down. And hopefully you had food. And that's when they sent everybody out, you know, to go find supplies and whatnot. And by the end of the war, there wasn't much left to find. So it was dicey on both sides. Um, So if you were in garrison and and you were uh, attached to an officer, you were doing okay. It was the uh, the camp followers and the you know the wives of the soldiers that decided to follow their men and uh, you know wherever they went. They had to live in the camp, and that was a whole nother thing. 
so yeah, she she was one of the the more uh, fortunate ones. But still, it wasn't like home. I just can't even imagine what all that would be like. I mean, you figure traveling in itself was, you know, the women were kept in the back in the wagons if they were lucky enough. Um, But many of them walked. They marched right along after the men. And uh, they camped out in the rough. You know, they might have a tent. But by this time, you know, like I said, supplies were were scarce on both sides. So, whew, it was still tough. Amazing. Plus, there was the weather, and 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 the there wasn't good medicine, and there was all those diseases and icky things. Well, the only thing that she had going for her, and uh, of course, this is just my opinion, was um, that on Long Island, it's very humid. <laughs> so she would be used to the mosquitoes and, you know, the more, yeah, more so than, you know, other British counterparts that came here from Britain. Yes, completely different. And those poor guys, they were wearing wool uniforms. Those uniforms, I don't know how they did it. Lord, between the hats that they had to wear and then, you know, everything else that they had to put on, if you, if you get a chance to, to go and look up uniforms of the Revolutionary War. Um, and and I, I, when I was a kid, we went up to the Bennington Museum, and they had, um, you know, Patriot uniforms, and they had British uniforms. And they were little. You know, the, the average, I think the average height of a man at that time was five foot six. Um, you know, anything over six feet was rare. But, uh, you know, the the average uh, size of a man was was about 5'6". So there was this little little uniform, this little British uniform. But it was so thick. The coat was thick. And I'm thinking the Georgia heat and humidity, I have been in Georgia, I have been in Savannah in the summer, and it is not pleasant even just walking along the river, you know, and... Who I can't, can't. They must have. Well, so many of them just dropped. Um, they'd be doing marches. I mean, these guys marched hundreds of miles in a few days. It was double time, and we're marching. And uh, good lord, you know the the yellow fever and the typhoid and the dysentery and the smallpox and and what and the malaria and oh. God, it's amazing they survived at all. I know. Well, now think about it. They, she went, so she she came. She was in New York. Now she went to. Then she went to Long Island. Then she went to Georgia, and now she's in South Carolina. Not much different. <laughs> oh my God! Oh, I know. South Carolina is beautiful, but it, it was treacherous in the summer, especially in the back country with the swamps. <sighs> yep. Okay, so let's see. I'm going to do a little bit backstory on 96, and then we're going to get into the Battle of 96. 
but um, God, my notes are mess. <laughs> I keep adding stuff to it. I know. Okay, so ninety-six. The unusual name was given by early traders in the 1700s because they mistakenly believed it was the number of miles to the Cherokee village of Kiowee in the upper South Carolina foothills. After its naming, many other places in South Carolina adopted this mileage from Kiowee in their name, e.g. the early town of Middle Six Mile in Pickens County. Now, when they're talking about the foothills of the Carolinas, um, there was a lot of so Scots in there, and there was a lot of loyalists there um, in that area of South Carolina. Not so much of like the Charleston area and the surrounding islands, but more so in the interior of South Carolina, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, by the mid-1700s, European colonists found it a favorable place to settle. During 96's early days, troubles with local Indians increased. I, I love they call them Indians. I'm so tired of the hyphenated Americans. It's yeah. ridiculous. There's no such thing as African-American, ladies and gentlemen. They're black people because there is no country Africa. Africa is a continent. It is not a country. I wish they would stop it. <laughs> Can't wait till we get the Republic back and get rid of all this feasty nonsense. Mm-hmm. By the mid-1700s, that's why I did it already. Let's see. In 1760, Cherokees twice attacked Fort 96, built for the settlers' protection. Now, we have talked about this before, Um, especially down in the Southern Theater. What would happen is a fort would be built, and actually in the Northern Theater too, but they they weren't as as popular as they were in the – well, maybe they were. Am I doing this right? Because if they did have to – uh, defend against the Indians up north as well. But a lot of villages down, French I know... built forts, and, I mean, the French had forts there up north because of the, the fur trade, and so there were a lot of forts already built, and they were the more sturdy kind made of, you know, the wood and everything and the stone. Down south, though, because there, you know, the, the south wasn't as as um, populated um, as early as, of course, the northern colonies. Um, and it was agrarian too. Yeah, and it was a whole different kind of terrain. And and then when the the war came, like the the French and Indian War, threw up quite a few forts, but the forts weren't always permanent. You know, they they were used for the time, and then some of them were just totally destroyed. And, I mean, you can still see the earthworks on a lot of them, but that's about all that's left. I mean, they just deserted them, and they just, you know, and they were basically, they weren't structures as much as earthworks. Right, and and the makeup of them is the fort was either on the outskirts or mostly on the outskirts of where other people lived. I mean, what would happen is when an attack would come, the people would run from their houses and go into the fort. Yeah. So that's what it was made. The, the people didn't actually live in the fort. Well, a couple of them had to, but that was before all this. Well, some but, forts they did, and they were the garrisons, but they were the more permanent forts, whereas, it, you know, if there was... Um, if there was territory to try to defend or take... 
you know, then you threw up some what they called forts, but um, you know, they had they they just threw up buildings that they needed, or it was a you know tents, and they threw up barricades, and they you know, then they left after it was all over. So. Right. Okay. So, um, Cherokees twice attacked. Fort 96, built for the settlers' protection. By the early 1700s, 96 Village reached its peak with a growing population, 12 houses, and a newly constructed courthouse and jail. The 96th Village was outside of the fort. Within the District Court Acts of 1768 to 1769, seven new overreaching districts were created, one being named the 96th District, and the town of 96 was designated as a district seat. 96 also figured prominently in the Southern Campaign of the American Revolution. Uh, it was the first land battle, which Deb is going to get into, and let's see, she's going to get into that too. South Carolinians have a particular pet peeve about this town and district. 95% of those who grew up in South Carolina are convinced that there is no hyphen between 90 and 6, mm-hmm. and many get quite upset when they see the names as 90-6. However, if one closely, if one closely scrutinizes official documents of the mid-1700s, most, not all for sure, do include the hyphen as proper English seems to dictate. Um, before Spanish adventurers arrived in South Carolina in the 16th century, the Rolling Hills is a Piedmont offered abundant game to Cherokee Creek, Cherokee Creek and Catawba Kawaba hunters, the first European settlers in the region, were Indian traders and cattle drovers, followed by Scots-Irish farmers who poured down from Pennsylvania. About 1750, Robert Gowdy established a plantation and store on the Cherokee Path at a place called 96, a name inspired by an estimate of the distance to Coahuila, a principal Cherokee town. Um, and then it goes to what it has. Uh, let's see. 96 was originally a geographical term. Traders out of Charleston, Charleston thought that this stopping place was 96 miles from the important Cherokee town in the Blue Ridge foothills. Following an ancient path worn by Indians, they packed firearms, blankets, and trinkets into the backcountry and swamped, swamped them for deer skins and furs. By 1700 or so, this trail, known as the Cherokee Path, was a major commercial artery. Over it flowed Trade you goods essential to the prosperity of the young colony. Um, on the eve of the American Revolution, 96 was a thriving village of 12 houses, a sizable courthouse, and a sturdy jail. At least 100 persons lived in the vicinity, and the land was cleared for a mile around. On the question of independence, sentiment was probably even more divided than along the coast. In what has been called the first major battle, you're going to do that, Da, da, da. Uh, 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 uh. You're going to do all that. You're going to do all that. But I wanted to bring them. I'm glad that I did do 96 because think about now where she is. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> now she's in the middle of the wilderness, surrounded by, by trees and Indians and, you know, these people. She has no connection to anybody except for her husband. 
this, this just, I don't know if it's me, but this just amazes me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, wouldn't it be, oh, God, there were so many times I wish I could just go back in history and, and take a peek, you know, and you read about it, but you have no idea how it really was. And You know, and it's unfortunate for her because she this would have made great letters and great journal writing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Too bad we don't have her her letters to her. I'm sure she wrote letters to her family, you know. And I haven't found them, but uh, they'd be great reading, too. Can you imagine? She, <laughs> oh, the stories she could tell. But, you know, it also goes to show that no matter what, Patriot or loyalists, we were all we were extremely hardy. Yes. And we were willing to give up everything for our beliefs. It didn't matter what side of the, the you know, coin you were. No so to say. We were we were a very strong independent people. Whether we were fighting for the British or we were fighting for the Patriots. Yeah. Because I mean, the British didn't understand was the American um the, the 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 heart of America the colonies was the the independence of the people. They took care of themselves. You know, if anything came up, you know, it would t- took a, a a a letter to get to Britain. You know, on a ship, so it's a month to two months. You know, with good weather. Um, so you couldn't just go, hello, we're having trouble. I mean, the British did send the soldiers to help with the Indians, but a lot of times it was too late. Well, and they couldn't understand even the women because we, were, we had a lot more power, we had a lot more independence, and we took care of a lot more things than a normal woman would in Europe as a whole. Yeah. I mean, we were only businesses over here. We were running plantations. Teenagers were running plantations. Remember that little girl we did? She was 16 mm-hmm. years old. She ran four plantations. I mean, who would do that now? Who could do? Who could have that fortitude right now? Yeah. So anyway, now she's at 96. Things have calmed down a little bit. She's getting a little bit of a breather. She's actually with her husband now, so she knows that he's alive. And that must have been a very joyful time for her. Yeah. Amen. And guess, and then the siege of 96 happened. Yes. Okay. Well, this is from an art, a good article over at carolana.com. Um, it's a wonderful site on, on uh, the battles and the you know, what went on in South Carolina. So it's Carol- Okay, well, let me, let me do this one. I forgot to do this one um, sentence. When the Patriot troops marched on 96 and sought refuge a mile away in the house of a loyal Presbyterian minister. However, she could still hear the constant gunfire, gunfire throughout the 30-day siege of 96. Again, right? Yeah. Doesn't know if her husband's alive. Can't go anywhere. At least she was with the loyalists. She wasn't with the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. 
All right. So this is uh, about 96 and, and the battles that went on during the Revolutionary War. And it goes, historical documentation states that this 1780 fort was located on the hill above 96 Village and was stockaded, had a formal fortification ditch and parapet protecting two blockhouses inside, and would have evidence of Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee's parallel approach trenches present. <clears throat> the town of 96 had 13 structures besides the jail and courthouse. An embankment is visible on each side of the county access road leading to the Star Fort, which was built by the British. Loyalist Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger's original town palisade encompassed an area 220 by 400 feet. The north blockhouse was located in the northwestern corner of the palisade, and there was a bastion on the northeast corner. A palisade wall was on the south side. To the north and west, a ditch was located inside the palisade, palisade but the, on the east side, an interior ditch was lacking. This ditch may have been dug outside the palisade. The dirt would then have been thrown up against the stockade to give added protection. Excavations show that the Star Fort and siege works varied in magnitude from specifications in the 18th century military manuals, but the basic placement and configurations conform to specifications. The British had secured 96 as a base of operations in the backcountry in June of 1780, and Lieutenant General Charles Lord Cornwallis believes that 96 would be crucial to control of the backcountry once the British Army moved northward out of South Carolina. Lord Cornwallis left Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger, a loyalist from New York, her husband, in charge of the outpost, with strict orders to strengthen all fortifications. Lieutenant Colonel Kruger's instructions were also to be vigorous in punishing rebels and maintaining order in the area. Lieutenant Colonel Kruger used the fortified town of 96 as his base of operations to send forth numerous raids and skirmishes against the local patriots. A series of events beginning in the autumn of 1780 put the success of the British Southern Campaign in doubt. In October of 1780, a Patriot militia force defeated Major Patrick Ferguson and his corps of provincials and loyalists to Kings Mountain. Brigadier General Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, was campaigning against British loyalists in the low country of South Carolina, and Brigadier General Thomas Sumter maneuvered his Patriot forces against loyalist targets in the South Carolina upcountry. Okay, before you start going further than that, we have, because we didn't do any of this um, here on this venue, um, you have to explain to the folks that there was really such a character as a Swamp Fox as portrayed in the movie. Oh, and the Patriot? Yeah. Yes, um, Francis Marion was um, a backcountry uh, man, and he was he was guerrilla. He, he he perfected guerrilla warfare, and his little band of patriots um, lived out in the swamps, and they raided on the British, and they kept picking at them and picking at them and picking at them, and they could never find them. And, um, <coughs> uh, I mean, they would show up and then disappear. They they were just, re uh, they knew the country, you know, it was their turf, and they harried the British because the British were, you know, in, in 
the the southern part of the the war i mean a lot of the british um had come from england a lot of the british soldiers had come from england and and didn't understand this country at all it was totally different than anything they'd been in and uh so the the swamp fox um and sumter um were really really uh, uh well they were the burr or the thorn in the side of the British because, like I said, they they would just disappear into the swamps and they couldn't be found. And that was how they they did so much damage uh, in the Southern Theater. But he he was uh, he he you should read about him because it's a it's a fascinating story. Uh so let's see where was I. Oh, yeah. In October of 1780, a Patriot militia force defeated Major Patrick Ferguson and his corps, Provincials and Loyalists. Yeah, I read that. Okay. Maneuver in the new... Okay. In addition, Major General Nathaniel Green, he's another one you should read about. He was very interesting, too. The new commander of the Continental Army in the South had split his army to move more widely through the Carolinas. Lord Cornwallis, fearing for 96 and overall British control of South Carolina sent units to remove the Patriot threat. The British lost many of the ensuing counters, including a significant defeat at the Battle of Cowpens in January of 1781. Lord Cornwallis and Major General Green met each other in March of 71 at, at 1781 at Guilford Courthouse in North Carolina. The British won this encounter but lost nearly a third of its force, including some of the best officers. Lord Cornwallis then moved his army to Wilmington, North Carolina, and Major General Green turned his attention back to South Carolina and ultimately to the retaking of 96. Major General Green hoped to loosen the British hold on the backcountry by taking 96 and forcing the enemy back to Charlestown. Major General Green set siege to 96 in May of 1781, but never took the fort. He was forced to lift the siege a month later as British reinforcements advanced toward 96. The British abandoned 96 in July and moved back to the coast, just as the Patriots wanted. This signaled the end of British control of the interior. The southern campaign was essentially over. British forces surrendered at Yorktown four months later, effectively ending the war. So, um, yeah, it was... And it goes on, let's see, it explains a little bit more here. When the British gained control of 96 after the fall of Charleston in May of 1780, they then surrounded the towns with a stockade and rebuilt Fort Williamson. Beyond the town was another redoubt known as the Star Fort. Um, it, it was 200 feet in diameter. It's not very big. I mean, 200 feet is nothing. And had 10 salients or star points, a ditch and an abatis surrounded the star fort. I'm not sure I said that right, but which would become the principal British position during the final siege. Lieutenant John Harris Kruger knew that the star fort was the key to his defenses here, and he prepared quite well for the inevitable siege that was now upon him. Additionally, the town of 96 was surrounded by tall walls built upon an elevated site that provided a clearing of one mile around the exterior. Um, they, 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 they. And then there was another additional fort west of the town, a hornwork built upon Fort Williamson known as Holmes Fort, a covered runway extended from the jailhouse and down a slope into a ravine where a small stream flowed, the fort's only water source. Now, you don't think about that. Um, 
they had to build it so that they could get water, and they had to have supplies. Um, I mean, good grief! And then they had to build build up the the you know defenses and everything. It says. When Colonel Francis Lord Rodden abandoned Camden, he sent messages to Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger ordering him to evacuate 96 and to join Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Brown in Savannah. Brigadier General Andrew Pickens' men intercepted these orders and kindly informed Major General Nathaniel Green, who moved his forces toward Lieutenant Colonel Kruger arriving at 96 on May 21st. Major General Green had his men to throw up earthworks for his own three-gun battery before the same sun came up on May 22nd. His guns were about 130 yards from the Star Fort. Continental Engineer Thaddeus, oh my, Kosciusko, I mangled that, I'm sure, laid out the siege lines in the typical European pattern. Throughout this first day, the Patriot artillery fired round after round into the Star Fort. Major General Green knew it would be a waste of time to ask for the fort to surrender, so he jumped right into the foray, but not by not asking was considered an insult according to the customs of the day, to hell with the British and their customs. By midday, Lieutenant Colonel Kruger, stung with indignity, moved his portable artillery platform on the wall of the redoubt, and that night his battery opened fire on the Patriots. This fire was merely a ruse and was a covering fire for a detachment of 30 loyalists from Delancey's brigade led by Lieutenant John Roney. The provincials sallied out of the fort and killed several patriots of a nearby trench working party. They filled the trench back up, captured a few slaves carrying loads of entrenching tools, and marched them back into the fort. Lieutenant Roney died of wounds he received on this brief mission. Kosciuszko began a new parallel farther back, about 1,200 yards from the fort. Digging was slow and tedious due to the rocky soil and the heat. Construction was periodically impeded at night with more loyalist sallies out of the fort, firing upon the trenching working parties. On June 3rd, the second parallel was completed, and the Patriots were within 180 yards from the Star Fort. Major General Green now sent in Colonel Otho Williams with a surrender proposal, but Lieutenant Colonel Kruger refused, as expected. Major General Green then attempted the old fire arrow trick. Lieutenant Colonel Kruger responded by tearing off all the roofs from the buildings and exposing those within to the elements each night. It was summer, so most welcomed the additional airflow. Then the Patriots attempted to mine underneath the walls of the fort, but the month of the mine was the mouth of the mine was discovered. There was an intense fight for it. One casualty was Kosciuszko. With a bayonet wound, another was Captain Joseph Pickens, Brigadier General Andrew Pickens' brother, who was killed. Next, Major General Green erected a 40-foot mayhem tower on June 6. This forced the defenders to put up sandbags with loopholes between them. Major General Green reported, Not a man could show his head, but he was immediately shot down. Lieutenant Colonel Kruger attempted to destroy the mayhem tower with heated cannonballs, but since the logs were green, the tower would not ignite. On June 8th, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee and his legion joined the siege. Then Brigadier General Andrew Pickens came forth and marched his prisoners taken at Augusta in front of the defenders at 96. This infuriated the provincials. Lieutenant Colonel Lee recommended that Major General Green focus his efforts on Fort Holmes, which guarded the enemy's water supply. A second parallel was begun to keep the spring under fire. Squire William Kennedy of the 2nd Spartan Regiment of Militia and another sharpshooter, 
shot two men at the spring from 200 yards, causing all within the star fort to look around for where the snipers were located. This significantly slowed down those going after water. The provincial then sent naked slaves out at night with a single pail to get water for the garrison. On a dark and cloudy day, Lieutenant Colonel Lee decided to make a second attempt at burning the fort. Sergeant Whaling and ten men from Lee's Legion were supposed to carry bundles of incendiary materials and set the garrison on fire. Sergeant Whaling knew this was a suicide mission. He dressed himself neatly, told his friends goodbye, and slipped into the enemy's ditch. An alarm was sounded, and the provincials attacked with a vengeance. Four of Lee's men returned, only one not wounded. Sergeant Whaling was killed. He had only two days until his enlistment expired. On June 11th, Major, ne- Major General Green learned that a relief column of 2,000 soldiers under Colonel Francis, Lord Rowden, were on the way from Charleston. Many were fresh recruits from Ireland and were not accustomed to the heat of South Carolina in the summertime. Major General Green immediately dispatched orders to Brigadier General Thomas Sumter and Brigadier General Francis Marion to gather their militias to get in front of Lord Rodden and do everything possible to delay his arrival at 96. He also ordered Lieutenant Colonel William Washington and Brigadier General Andrew Pickens to go help Brigadier General Marion in any way they could. Brigadier General Sumter's partisans did not strike or did strike Lord Rodden's column, but he didn't have many men supporting him at that point. Worse yet, Brigadier General Marion could not get his men up to speed quickly enough to even find Lord Rodden, much less to slow him down. Major General Green then decided to take the fort by force. Time was quickly running out for the Patriots. On June 17th, a heavy artillery barrage was aimed at Fort Holmes to soften it up for the upcoming attack. Our fire was so heavy that the provincials abandoned Fort Holmes and their only water supply. In a two-pronged attack, one force was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell with a detachment of Virginia and Maryland Continentals going after the Star Fort. The other force was made up of Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee's Legion Infantry in the North Carolina and Delaware Continentals led by Major Michael Rudolph going after Fort Holmes. At noon on June 18th, the Patriots opened up with an intense artillery fire. Major Rudolph led his troops across the moat, and after an hour of fighting, was able to force his way into Fort Holmes. This he finally held, now waiting for Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell's attack on the Star Fort. Lieutenant Colonel Campbell's men raced into the ditch around the Star Fort, armed with long poles with hooks on one end. The men attempted to pull down the sandbags from the parapets and expose the defenders to fire from the Mam Tower. The enemy could not fire down upon the attackers without exposing themselves to the riflemen in the tower. Axemen cut down the abatis, and festines were thrown into the ditch to fill it in. When Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger saw the sandbags falling into the ditch, he took immediate action. He sent out two elements of Delancey's provincials with bayonets affixed to take out the hookmen. There was a brief and bloody encounter in the ditch with the Patriots getting the worst of it. Lieutenant Colonel Campbell's men were driven back with heavy losses, and the final Patriot attack was now a failure. Major General Green requested a ceasefire to exchange prisoners and bury the dead, but Lieutenant Colonel Kruger refused. He knew that whomever won would be allowed to bury the dead. The next morning, Major Green lifted his siege and marched away. He stopped his army about 20 miles away and learned that Lord Rowden marched into 96 in the afternoon of June 21st. Brigadier General Andrew Pickens was sent to take the sick and wounded to Fish Dam Fort. He quickly turned around and led his men back to Long Canes to show the people that Major General Green's army was not retreating. Um, And so it goes on after 
And then, uh, let's see, oh, Lord, this was just, um, okay. Lord Rodden initially considered chasing Major General Green, but when he learned that the baggage train was within 20 miles, he changed his mind. He replaced his sick and wounded with fresh ones from the garrison at 96. He ordered his men to leave all gear that was not needed, including the knapsacks and blankets, and he marched back out of 96 on June 23rd. After a 40-mile march, Colonel Francis Lord Rowden caught up with Major General Nathaniel Green's rear guard, consisting of Lieutenant Colonel Henry's Legion and Captain Kirkwood's Delawares, but the British were no longer able to fight. More than 50 of Lord Rowden's men had died of heat exhaustion, all wearing heavy woolen uniforms in the 100-degree heat. To make things worse, Major General Green had dismantled all mills along the way, so there were no provisions for the enemy. <coughs> Lord Rodden then returned once again to 96 and immediately realized he could not hold the town much longer. He marched out on June 29th with 800 men and 60 horses. He was expecting to meet up with Lieutenant Colonel Stewart and Alexander Stewart, but Stewart had received incorrect orders and had returned to Dorchester. Major General Green then ordered Lieutenant Colonel Lee, Captain Kirkland, and 100 militia under Major Alexander Ross to continue to harass Lord Rodden's retreat. Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger remained at 96 to protect the local loyalists who were gathering all their belongings. On July 8th, Lieutenant Colonel Kruger destroyed the fort and escorted all who wanted to go to Charleston to remain under British protection. 96 was now back in Patriot hands. The only remaining British outposts were Dorchester, Monk's Corner, and a small garrison at Nelson's Ferry on the Santee River. They would not last much longer either. The Patriots wanted the British back in Charleston where they could be easily watched in one location and not spread out all over their lands. So this is what she heard and, and, and heard about, you know, as the days went by. I mean, got generals going back and forth, back and forth, patriots in the ditches and, and fighting and, and dying, and then they destroyed the fort and and left. all the people gathering their baggage to get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, this poor woman. My God. I know. I, I just... <laughs> <laughs> is your phone making a strange noise or is that mine? Did I lose... Hello. Hello. There you are. Am I there? Yes, you are. Okay. <laughs> I have a new setup with this uh, uh, with new little earbuds that my husband uses with a little microphone attached to it that I'm trying to do tonight to see if it sounds any better. And unfortunately, um, I'm not going to know because I can't get on talk show. So I'm going to have to have you uh, listen to it. Yes. But anyway, you you have a good point. I mean, again, she's in what? She's with somebody else she doesn't know. She's at this Presbyterian minister's place, right? Yeah. While this is all going on. My stupid chicken. <laughs> um, yeah, again, she's she's alone. She's in an, another strange place with more strangers, not knowing if her husband's alive or dead. And I mean, well, the account that you just did, 
uh, he was a pretty, you know, he was a pretty smart and powerful um, soldier. He held that for a long time. Yes. So, I mean, as we're pointing out on both sides, like this, like this is a civil war, and both sides were had their virtues and their vices. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they, they, they were now enemies, and they, they were trying to survive. See, this is what so many people today don't understand about war, because so many people are not involved in war at all. Things happen during war. It's it's insanity. It's insanity. Uh, it, and and anyone who you know, if you if you've talked to a vet who's been in combat, um, and they talk about it, which you know is rare because you know it's not something you really want to sit and discuss because it's insane. I, I, yeah, but the wars we're fighting right now, it, it, war is meant to be like this because you don't want to ever do it again. Right. And we're not fighting any real wars now. We haven't won a war since World War II. I know. They're not allowing their soldiers to do their job. No, they're not. And they're putting the soldier. they're putting, I'm sorry, our kids in jeopardy of losing their lives and limbs. And if you haven't, mass, haven't noticed, most of them have lost a lot of their limbs. Yep. So, um, again, wars are, are supposed to be brutal. This, we, were, we did this because we wanted the loyalists to pick a side, you know, or get out. Yeah, and a lot of them did stay, and a lot of them was also the reason for the War of 1812 because the British were supposed to leave the forts that they had taken over, and they never did, and we never enforced it, hence the War of 1812. Yeah, the Second Revolutionary War. Yep, and also because of a lot of the patriots that stayed here. All right, let's see. Um, back to Anne. Thanks to military records, we know that Kruger was cited for vigilance Gallant and gallantry during the siege by his superior officers. In the fall of 1781, John was also commended for his gallantry in the fighting at Edwa Springs, which brings us to another battle, which I am loading as we speak. Mm-hmm. Okay. Loading, loading, loading. <laughs> All right. Seven years of British determination to bring South Carolina to her knees met with failure. The spirit that had long resisted royal edict and church canon, the fierce desire and indomitable will to be masters of their own destinies, and the dauntless courage that had carved a new way of life from a wilderness were again threatened by oppression. The little difference was felt among nationalities and creeds, causing a unity to grow among the new world peasants and shepherds. And that's what they called us, right? No matter what. We even did a story about a loyalist governor who goes back to England after the war, and they just treat him like crap because he was, no matter what, no matter what their station, no matter how much wealth they had, they were still Americans. And they were not thought much of in England. No, they were not. And they called us like this 
author says peasants and shepherds. They didn't care what station we are. That's what they considered us. That shook the foundation of all regimes. By midsummer of 1781, the Continentals under Major General Nathaniel Green had gained virtual control of South Carolina. The retreating British, disillusioned and sick with summer heat, united forces under Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart at Orangeburg and began their march to Charleston. Early in September, the 2,300 well-equipped British camped in cool shade beside the gushing springs of Etowah, little dreaming... Huh? Utah. Utah. Utah, really? With an EU? Mm-hmm. You. Okay. Utah. <laughs> Little dreaming that a fairly large Patriot army was close upon their heels. Major General Green, hearing of General George Washington's plan to encircle and embarrass the British at Yorktown in Virginia, determined to prevent Southern aid from reaching the belligerent Lieutenant General Charles Lord Cornwallis. Contingents under Generals Marion, Pickens Lee, and Lieutenant Colonels William Washington Hampton, among other Southern Carolina leaders, were called together and reinforcements from other states joined them. And this is what my husband keeps saying. He really believes that if, we, if a state stands up, and we really stands up to the federal government, we will come to their aid. And we did that in the Revolutionary War. All right. Um, let's see. Okay, Americans camped on September 7th on the River Road at Burdell Plantation, only seven miles from Utah Springs. I don't know what key one is saying, Etowah. <laughs> Utah Springs. Strategy for the ensuing attack was accredited to the genius of the dreaded Swamp Fox, Brigadier General Francis Marion, who knew every foot of the Santee Swamp, Swamp and River. Actually, we highlighted the Santee Swamps at one point. Mm-hmm. Robert D. Bass asserted in his, da, 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 I don't want to read that. After organizing his army for attack, Major General Nathaniel Green moved down the Congre Road to Burdell's Tavern, which is also another famous tavern, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Only seven miles from his enemy. I cannot believe how important taverns were back in the day. They were the places, yeah. They were. At 4 a.m. on September 8th, he marched from Bordell's, his army in four columns, each detailed to its place at Utah Springs. Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson led the advance with the South Carolina State Troop and Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee's Legion Legions. Brigadier General Francis Marion came next with the militia of North Carolina and South Carolina. We had talked about that North Carolina, I think, only had one major battle, and basically what they were were... um, I guess you would call them, well, they were militia, but they were, and I'm not going to use a stupid insurgent word, which they, by the way, notice they're trying to use that on us? Yes. Yeah. Um, they were, uh, how do I say this? Guerrilla warfare. Yeah, they were like the guerrillas going in and out, in and out, and helping other people. That's what uh, North Carolina's um, role was in the revolution. And supplies. Okay. Okay. Brigadier General Jethro Sumner followed with the Continentals and Lieutenant Colonel William Washington brought up the rear with his 3rd Regiment of Continental Dragoons from Virginia. Yeah. And his deployment, um, I'm not going to get all into this because we're getting towards the end. Uh, It's very long. Yeah, it it tells all about the battle and it was a battle. Yes. I mean, it, it... Looked good there for a while, and uh, I mean they were they were um, they were in shape in the woods. 
You know, I right. mean, I, I think if you've seen pictures of the Revolutionary War battles, you've seen them where they've been, they're, they're in woods, behind trees, you know? Yeah, I, I, I can read a little bit more of this, though. Heavy firing soon crackled and boomed through the shady woods, like you said, trees. At the, at the first, the center of the Patriot line caved in. But while opposing flanks were fighting separate battles, Major General Green restored the center with the North Carolina Continentals. The whole British line then began to give, but Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart quickly pulled up his left flank reserve, forcing the Patriots to retreat under thunderous fire. Both the British and the Continentals were astonished to see Marion's militiamen steady, unfaltering, and advancing life veterans into the enemy's hottest fire. The fire redoubled, our officers behaved with the greatest bravery, and the militia gained much honor by their firmness, Major General Green later reported. Brigadier General Francis Marion's militia units fired 17 rounds near the limit of their flintlock endurance. Then, with ammunition exhausted, they retired in good order, leaving the fighting to Brigadier General Jethro Sumner's Continentals. The Continentals moved forward with spirit. As the Patriots advanced, the left of the British line fell back in disorder, and Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee, wheeling his infantry upon them, increased the enemy's confusion. In the center, Lieutenant Colonel Kruger's line held, British regulars meeting Continentals in hand-to-hand fighting, bayonets meeting bayonets. The British fled in every direction, and the Patriots took over their camp. Only Major John John Majory Banks on the British right flank had pushed far back into the woods near Utah Creek, was able to hold his unit together. Major Henry Sherlerton took his refuge in the brick home. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart gathered some of his men beyond, and from his vantage, they picked off many American officers and men. Major General Nathaniel Green then sent Lieutenant Colonel Washington's cavalry to deal with Major Major Meade Banks. <laughs> his name is really Major I and Banks. Yes. But perpetrating the woods with horses was too difficult. So Lieutenant Colonel Washington tried to encircle and rout, thus exposing himself to dangerous fire. His horse was shot from under him. He himself was wounded and his company practically ravaged. When a hand-to-hand fight developed, a British soldier poised his sword over the wounded Lieutenant Colonel Washington. But Major Banks saw this and gallantly turned it aside. Washington was now his prisoner. So that was part of the battle, um, but uh, let's see. The total casualties came to 1,188, according to Reverend M. H. Osborne. Many were buried where they fell. Therefore, the whole battlefield is a hero cemetery, sacred to the memory of courageous men. Patriot blood shed at Utah Springs was certainly not shed in vain. The last major battle in South Carolina completely broke the British hold in the South, and more important, denied needed aid to the North. Only six weeks later, Lord Cornwallis succumbed to General George Washington at Yorktown, and America independence was assured. I feel like crying. And you see, and you figure I'm getting goosebumps. Kruger wasn't military. He wasn't a military. You know, he wasn't an officer. Her husband. You know, in the in before the the war. Yeah, her husband wasn't. No, and and he was amazing. You know, he was. One of the better um, officers. Because he was an American. Yeah. Because of the independence that was in his heart. Yeah. Even and, though they were loyal to the king, they were still Americans. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 of course, 
the, the British who believed that the Irish were, you know, less than dirt under their feet, sent the Irish over. <laughs> you know, it was basically if you were Irish, you had, you know, you you weren't, you were fodder for the British Army. Yep. Okay, so now we're going to go back to the Krugers. The Krugers returned to New York where they just, oh, and I need you to get up that information about how many loyalists went to Britain. Okay. All right. The Krugers returned to New York where they discovered that all of their property had been confiscated by rebels. Remaining in the New Republic was clearly not an option, and a lot of them didn't. Um, the, they didn't have a choice, obviously, because they didn't have anything. But a lot of the loyalists still had their property, and then they had to decide whether they were going to pledge allegiance to the state that they were in and to the new America, or they were going to leave. They didn't have a choice because they had nothing. Anne and John Kruger lived in London in July of 1783. Like many other loyalists, John made an appeal for compensation. Interestingly, the trials that Anne endured go completely unmentioned in his long petition. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I figured, I forgot this part. I mean, she really... She really did have trials that she had to endure. Whether John ever received fair redress for all of his military service and losses is unknown. The Krugers became friends with another lost loyalist, Thomas Jones, the former Supreme Court judge of New York. The judge concluded his story of the Krugers by noting that they were living peaceably, happily, and contentedly at Beverly in Yorkshire, esteemed by the people, the gentry, and the nobility. John Kruger died in England in 1807 at 69 years of age and lived more years, dying in Chelsea in 1822. Whether the Krugers ever had children is not recorded. If they did, then the British descendants of Anne Delancey Kruger have an amazing loyalist heritage. And that's the Krugers. And like I said earlier in the show, as well as the Indians, the loyalists were thrown on the brush by the British. They were. Major. There was a lot. They were major, like you said, major. I agree. Um, they, the only thing that saved a lot of the loyalists was the um, generosity, believe it or not, of the people in Canada. The, yes. the people in Canada. Britain didn't save a lot of the loyalists. The people in Canada and Nova Scotia did. Yes. Okay. So... The vast, this is from um, conservapedia.com about loyalists. And it says, the vast majority of the loyalists, 300,000 to 400,000, remained in America during and after the war. Starting in the mid-1780s, some of those who had left returned to the U.S. Following the end of the revolution in 1783, loyalists, especially soldiers and former officials, could choose evacuation Loyalists whose roots were not yet deeply embedded in the New World were more likely to leave. Older men who had familial bonds and had acquired friends' property and a degree of social respectability were more likely to remain in America. About 15 to 20 percent of the Loyalists left. An estimated 70,000 Loyalists, or about 3 percent of the total American population, about 46,000 went to Canada, 7,000 to Great Britain, and 17,000 to British colonies in the Caribbean. About 32,000 went to Nova Scotia. 
where they were not well received, so the colony of New Brunswick was created for them. About 10,000 went to Canada, especially the eastern townships of Quebec and modern-day Ontario. The richest and most prominent loyalist exiles went to Great Britain to rebuild their careers, and many received pensions. Many southern loyalists, taking along their slaves, went to the West Indies and the Bahamas. Thousands of Iroquois and other Native Americans were expelled from New York and other states and resettled in Canada. A group of black loyalists settled in Nova Scotia, but facing discrimination there, emigrated again for Sierra Leone. Many of the loyalists were forced to abandon substantial amounts of property, and restoration of or compensation for this lost property was a major issue during the negotiation of the Jay Treaty in 1795. The British government paid large sums and claims to the loyalists. And then, uh, let's see... Of of those who left Massachusetts, virtually all expressed a desire to return to what they considered their native home. After the last wave of anti-Toryism passed in the wake of the Peace Treaty of 1783, a number of Loyalists, especially young native-born and still emotionally attached to their native state, made their way back to Massachusetts between 1784 and 1789. On re-entering Massachusetts, they encountered, for the most part, a warm welcome from Americans and were able to integrate themselves into society, reclaiming property, collecting debts, and joining the conservative federalist political culture of the state. Massachusetts was one of the the more um, welcoming colonies, states now. Um, other colonies were not quite so welcoming if you were a loyalist. We didn't want you around no matter what, you know. But Massachusetts was, like, at the top of the list for um, welcoming their their native sons, so to speak. Uh, in fact, um, they made a big deal about, okay, the war's over. You know, we won. So if you're willing to be an independent American of these United States, then we welcome you totally. And and that was one thing um, that it was rather Massachusetts was was really unique in its uh, welcoming of the of the loyalists. Um, well, and as you had said, and we have covered the loyalists um, going back to Britain. A lot of them found it so intolerable that they went to other colonies. Yeah, they were not going to be put because. And again, we've talked about this, but I'm not sure about on this venue. Because, like you said, they, they were treated as second-class citizens, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, they were used to being fiercely independent. And they couldn't find that independence in England because it was still mostly like a caste society. Yep. So they figured, well, if the colonies in America were freer, right, why wouldn't another colony... It wouldn't be as restrictive as being in England. Yeah, or else they went to the other colonies where you know they could be, you know, in the upper echelons. Or they could start businesses again when they couldn't, because the British was giving you know funds to the merchant uh, class to to do so in the other colonies. They still needed uh, goods, even though they had lost. To America, that left a huge gap of stuff that they could get for their people, right? Yep. So, 
it's interesting. Um, there's a recruiting poster for Loyalist soldiers in Philadelphia, and uh, it it they it tells what they they'll give. They says who um, all intrepid able-bodied heroes who are willing to serve His Majesty King George III in defense of their country, laws, and constitution against the arbitrary usurpations of a tyrannical, tyrannical Congress have now not only an opportunity of manifesting their spirit by... Um, I, it's hard to read because it's in the old language, in uh, assisting and reducing to obedience their too long deluded countrymen also of acquiring the polite accomplishments of a soldier <laughs> by serving only two years or during the present rebellion in America. They were optimistic. Such spirited fellows who are willing to engage will be rewarded at the end of the war besides their laurels with 50 acres of land where every gallant hero may retire and, en and enjoy his bottle and laugh. Each volunteer will receive as a bounty $5.00 Besides arms, clothing, and accoutrements, and every other requisite proper to accommodate a gentleman soldier, by applying to Lieutenant Colonel Allen or at Captain Kearney's rendezvous at Patrick Tonry's, three doors above Market Street and Second Street. And it goes, it says underneath, the recruiting uh, poster for Loyalist Soldiers, Philadelphia, 1777, and the British were stunned that so few colonists volunteered for their army. <laughs> I thought that was cute. Oh, well, there you go. Well, we're coming up to the top of the hour, and that was Our Lady Anne and her husband and everything that was else was going on, and we probably will be revisiting this theater. I just thought it was fascinating. She was in almost every single theater. I mean, she was even in the middle, because part of North Carolina, parts of South Carolina considered the middle theater. I mean, <laughs> again... I still have in my head, Deb, her standing on the beach with all her things. I mean, this would have made a great movie. It would. It would. God, um, yeah, there would be so many great movies out of the, the people we've done. Um, and speaking of Georgia, there was uh, Cross-Eyed Annie there. Or Nan, was her name Nan? Oh, uh, Mad, Mad Ann. There was Mad Ann. And, and Nancy in Georgia. And these two women were, they were freaking amazing. Um, they would make great movies. I mean, they lived out in the back woods, you know. They, they were out in the wilderness in Georgia. And Mad Annie dressed as a man and, and went into the British camps, if I remember correctly, and acted crazy. You know, even the Indians were a little, you know, woohoo. And then there was Nan. She was cross-eyed and six feet tall, red-haired, and she took out quite a few British soldiers. <laughs> she didn't want them on her property. No, thank you. So there's there's so many wonderful, wonderful stories of the women well, of the revolution. Well, it's the top of the hour, and as always, I want to thank everyone for being here. And uh, I want to remind the folks as this voting gets closer and closer, not only now for the presidential campaign, which kind of getting me a little bit upset that it's overshadowing important, other important voting going on across this country. Governors are being voted in, legislatures are being voted in, in the state, which is really important. And it's just getting overshadowed. But 
the most the most that we can hope for is to get the frogs out, which is like ninety nine percent of them. Yes. So um, what I want you to do is, if you have some time, go over to a site called Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us. It is a uh, educa- another educational endeavor that my husband and three other scholars, one of them uh, self-taught historical scholars, one of them being the gentleman that brought Deb and I together, uh, Tim Curlin, who has passed away. Um, and it is day-by-day rendition of the Continental Congress, what they said in their own words, so that you can learn what this country is about why they decided what they did, and what the Constitution really means. So go to Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us. You can download it. You can burn it to disk. Uh, you can listen to it while you're in your car or doing chores. It's important. We need to know our history. We need to know where we came from so we can go back to it. No, we're not going to move forward. We're going to move backward because that's the way that, that was the greatness of the United States back then. So PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub. And as always, I let Deb take us out. Okay. Well, as always, I speak of our kids in uniform and, you know, the the vets who are totally getting screwed through the VA system and um, don't listen to anything that's coming out of the mouth of the bureaucrats because the VA system is still totally screwed up and our vets are dying for want of help and I just pray for our kids in uniform who are in terrible places yes we are still at war in Afghanistan and yes we are still fighting in very very dangerous places um, and we're losing more soldiers and special ops um, so Give a thought to to those who are still doing their duty and fighting, whatever. Uh, I'm not even sure what they're fighting anymore. But say a prayer for them. Go visit your local VA hospital and talk to the vets. And just keep an eye out and an ear to the ground. See what's going on. They They always love to have visitors and... You also can check up on what's happening there and then contact your representative and let them know that you're watching. We need to keep, you know, they they, they watched our six. We need to watch their six. And uh, as the mother of a soldier daughter, I would appreciate it. And as always, good night, Loki. We miss you so much. And thanks for stopping by, and we'll be back, hopefully, (laughs) life willing, next week with another amazing woman of the American Revolutionary War. Good night, all. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.